Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Jeff B. was a chief of staff for a county commissioner. Then he made the news after being arrested in a hotel room for possession of crack cocaine. After three days in jail, he ended up coming to Mar. Through his time and treatment, he learned that he was not entitled to special privileges because of his job, but that he was just another man who needed help. He connected with his counselors and his community, and he learned that he was much more than what he did for a living. And we also want to take this opportunity to thank Kaiser Permanente of Georgia for their generous grant that's helping support our services here at MAR. All right, here's Jeff. Why don't you just start by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Jeff Breedlove. I am uh, was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm 52 years old. I've been married to my wife, Catherine, for 25 years. We adopted our son, Jack. When he was five years old, he was born in China. And uh, we make a happy little family that live in Grant Park. Um, I spent most of my professional career in uh, government and political service and began um, my active addiction when I was uh, right at 20 years old. And it lasted for basically 30 years. Now I'm in recovery thanks to uh, a whole lot of people, uh, not the least of which is, is the fact that I had the privilege and blessing to come to Mar. Wow. So 30, you said 30 some years? Basically right at 30 years. Wow. Wow. I got arrested when I was 50 years old. Okay. So let's go back to 20. What what did that look like when it started? You know what it looked like when it started? And I, I always tell people this. It's very important to remember, especially for young people. We didn't have smartphones, mm-hmm. really even cell phones, and certainly didn't have social media. And it was very regular in society to be... If you left your home or work, uh, phones were just landline phones. And so it was common to be away from people and unaccountable. Mm -hmm. And so I could, I realized I could be away from people. And I worked on it here at Mar, but I, you know, I think it was just a lot of uh, combination of arrogance. Uh, I think I was uh, having some feelings based around some things that happened in my childhood and I wanted to escape. And, Look, I I went out and um, put myself in a situation, frankly, with a with a prostitute, mm-hmm. and um, she had crack cocaine, and I arrogantly it was in the news. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had been in the news. Uh, some basketball player for the Celtics, I think, had overdosed from it, and I somehow thought, well, it won't impact me, mm-hmm. but I can try it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that did not work. <laughs> So this, are you talking about back when you were 20? Yeah. That's, oh, okay. that's the first time I did it. That oh, was, wow. I was describing you the literal first time I did wow. it. Wow. Um, my pattern quickly developed into using a lot of that product in short bursts of time. I was a functioning addict. Uh, I know, and I've talked to the people whose lives I was in, my bosses and my family. Nobody knew for years that I was living this secret life. Um, the product, crack cocaine, it, it, it's a short high. So I could just do it and leave and go function. The, the problem with that drug is, is that you become more and more dependent on it. Mm. So that lasted until 1998 when I lost my first job because of it. And then people found out about it. Um, starting with my wife and, and my employer and then my immediate, my parents and all, all of that, my sister. Um, 
and that began an odyssey uh, from 1998 to 2002 where I would uh, get a job because people, the stigma around addiction is very real. And I'm an example of that. Um, The people who were impacted by my drug use, they didn't want any attention in the news, especially in government and politics. So they would just be like, well, we got to fire you. You got to go away. Mm -hmm. We'll give you a reference. I mean, whatever you want, just leave. Yeah, right. And so I would, I had a pattern from 98 to 2002 where I would get a job and then lose the job because of an incident with drugs. Mm -hmm. But I could just go get another job. And I think that emboldened, these folks were enablers without knowing they were enablers. Mm-hmm. They were victims too, but they were enabling me because it just it emboldened me. Well, I can do what I want to do, and I'll just get another job. Right. Um, now, one of the victims of that was my wife. We moved from Arizona to Montana to Washington State to Oregon to Sacramento to Los Angeles. We never we got to the point where we stopped putting the U-Haul boxes in storage and just left them you know, in the apartment. Um, She was a saint to stay by me, and it was very unfair. Now, you know, it was a very unhealthy situation I was putting myself in and her in, but that was my reality. That was active addiction for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I could not keep a job. I was very unhappy, Um, and it became increasingly more and more dangerous. But in 2002, my mother-in-law, unfortunately, she got very sick back in Atlanta. We were in Los Angeles. And my wife wanted to come home and be her primary caregiver. And we did. I got a job at the Georgia State Senate. With that history. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Because nobody, again, the stigma was such that nobody would tell anybody. Right, right. So it was all kind of hidden, tucked away. Right. Yeah. Small little almost silos of secrecy. Yeah, Wow. And uh, to me, it's extraordinary. Uh Um, Now, when I came home, for whatever reason, I I did not use any. And crack cocaine is really all I've ever done. Yeah, really. I was yeah, I was going to ask you that lately. I've tried alcohol. I don't. I don't like the way it tastes. Uh It was never my thing. I don't think I've ever had a full glass of anything. Uh I've tried marijuana and, and other stuff. I don't. I. Don't like it. Never did anything uh-huh. for me, which is not my stuff. Powder wasn't my stuff, anything. Mm-hmm. So we thought, my wife and I, that I was cured, Yeah, that I was better because I went for, according to her, almost six years without doing anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I know now that was just abstinence and, and I was by no means healthy. But that did happen. That, that dry spell happened. But then the third phase of my addiction occurred. Um which I argue is the most dangerous and the Mm. one that almost killed me. Um, I would go for about 11 years, the last 11 years of my active addiction, um, once, maybe twice a year, but usually once a year. And again, my wife is now kind of literally keeping records, Mm -hmm. you know, mostly mentally, but she's very aware of what's going on. Keeping records of? Of of my activity. Okay. And, you know, she tells me... Basically, once a year, I would go binge, and uh-huh. the binge would last twenty-four to forty-eight hours. Right, but those binges were very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's where I was running up debts, okay, uh, pawning cameras and computers, uh, loaning the car out to dealers, um, putting myself and my family and my loved ones in harm ways in harm's way. Um, 
they never ended well. Uh, that's part of the insanity that yeah. I acknowledge is is a true part of addiction. Uh, I kept doing the same thing over and over again um, because I couldn't help it. Um, so were you bef- before the incident that brought you into Mar? Had you were you ending up in jail in any of these incidents or? Well, amazingly enough, I had never been arrested. Wow. On two occasions, I had come close to being arrested. Um, I remember one distinctly in Spokane, Washington. The officer, they actually found an item on me, a pipe, Mm -hmm. and the officer released me into, gave me to my wife and said, you know, he needs help. In hindsight, you know, you can't blame the officer for compassion. Right, right. Um, But, but... You know, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So I'd never actually been arrested. Um, The arrest was extraordinary. Um, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end of the day, I'm very glad it happened. I think that arrest is one of um, three things that saved my life. But um, it was October, I don't know, 23rd or 4th or something like that in 2016. It was a Friday that the binge began. And this one actually went to Sunday morning very early. And again, I had done all the things I said I'd done. Lost control of the car, gave gave the keys to the dealer, run up a massive debt with the dealer, and called a friend of mine who I thought would extract me from the situation, Mm -hmm. uh, pay the debt, and help me leave. Um, This time, this friend decided to call the police. And um, literally... Uh, the police knocked on the door of the of a hotel room. And um, it's funny, some of the news stories have gotten it wrong. Um, I was not arrested on a drug charge because I had no drugs or paraphernalia on my mm-hmm. person. If I had kept my big mouth shut, <laughs> yeah. I probably would have left. Um, my arrogance was such that, you know, I was like, well, don't you know who I am? I'm the chief of staff or one of your county commissioners. and. Mm-hmm. I don't think they liked that very much. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, they they don't just arrest the chief of staff. You you go to police headquarters first. And and I was handcuffed and all that, but I, I don't go to jail. I go to headquarters, and, and I'm telling you, almost seven hours later, um, they come up to me. Uh, these are detectives, and they say, um, well, we're going to be arresting you now on a felony charge of of lying to the police. And, of course, that didn't make me happy. Yeah. And, again, I haven't been to treatment. And so I'm very arrogant and self-centered, and I demand to see the superior, Mm -hmm. don't you know? Because that's who who should be talking to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was there right around the corner. Mm -hmm. And um, he stepped around that corner, and he was a very large detective. Yeah. And he got in my face, and he was having some adult conversation with me that was uh, not suitable for primetime television. Yeah. And then he hugged me out of the blue, and he whispered in my ear, and I will never forget this. He said, we're also going to save your life this time. And promptly handcuffed me. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so where we're talking right now and where I got my treatment was in the district that I was the chief of staff of the county commissioner for. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the young officer that drove me from headquarters to jail was an officer I had done two executive ride-alongs with as a county official mm. on police ride-alongs. He was 26 years old. 
or I guess he's 28 years old now or something. Awkward for him, awkward for me. We're talking on the way to jail. He's crying. I'm humiliated. But uh, as I look back on it, just another life I was impacting, mm. you know. And they take me to jail, and I spent three days in the DeKalb County Jail. Um, Sheriff Mann was extraordinarily professional. I didn't necessarily get any special treatment, but I, um, uh, but they knew who I was, and um, I, I left three days later. Now you would think, maybe, hey, getting arrested might start sinking through. Well, not yet. I mean, I noticed it. I knew it had happened to me, but I wasn't, I wasn't there yet. Yeah, I needed. Well, I didn't necessarily need it, but what happened was the first words, my mom and sister came to pick me up from jail. And the first words my sister said to me was, well, you've made the news. And I go home and uh, I get to watch news stories that have been on every channel in Atlanta, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, several blogs on Facebook, pages Mm -hmm. on Facebook. Three or four days of news coverage. And that's when I knew that was the first time that it clicked with me that there'd never be a secret again. I jokingly say that my second home is Google. Anybody that I would meet professionally, anybody that I would meet personally, I'll, you know, culturally now we do Google searches on people. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the lead story on, on Jeff Breedlove would be crack arrest, crack arrest. So I'm facing a felony charge and being told by my family and my attorney, well, you're going to have to get treatment, don't you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know what treatment means. I don't know what treatment look like. Yeah, looks right. like. Here's what I knew about treatment. I knew that I had told a few friends that were trying to help me that if I was seen at a treatment facility, that it would, might hurt my career. Now, I never told anybody Hey, if I was seen in a hotel smoking crack cocaine, that might hurt my career. Yeah. That's how sick and insane I yeah, was and right, this disease right. is. I mean, you just don't rationally think in active addiction. So I was at the point of, well, I'm probably going to have to go somewhere. And to be honest with everybody, the first place that I called wasn't Mar. I had not heard of Mar. Yeah. Um, I called some of the places that may be more do more commercials mm-hmm. and I'm talking to them and it's, well, you just come in here for 28 days and pay us a lot of money and you'll get mm-hmm. what you need. And I'm not insulting any other place. Yeah. But that didn't feel right with me. Yeah. 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 Long story short, we knew somebody that knew somebody that had heard about Mar and they, they were like, this is the best place. And by the way, it's not 28 days. It's a minimum of 90 days. And that scared me to death. And I didn't want to come here. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But my family was sort of insistent that we'd at least – it's the only place we, we came to like have an admissions interview. And I'll never forget, we're sitting in the interview and, um, you know, my wife is doing a lot of the talking with the staff member. And yeah. They finally let me ask a question. And I said, well, I, I want the plan where I get my own apartment. And she laughed. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work that way here. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, no, whatever it costs. Now, remember, I have no money. Yeah. I'm totally in debt to my family at this point. I have yeah. no job. I have nothing, but I'm insisting out of arrogance and yeah. because of who I am that I get my own room. Well, of course, I didn't get my own room. And um, I came to Mar and I was um, 
reluctant. I was scared. I was angry. Uh, all those things that so many of us uh, might might feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and Doug Brush, all he would say to me the first few days was, pray for, for surrender, pray for surrender. And I didn't know what that man meant. And I would say, what do you mean? He'd say, you'll figure it out. Or you won't. So we talked about it on my exit interview <laughs> 90 mm-hmm. days later. But, of course, now I know what he means. And being at Mar uh, was the other, well, was the second of three things that saved my life. Um, I unabashedly love Mar. Um, I think it, I think there's many pathways to recovery. I don't think everybody has to recover the way that, that I recover. Mm-hmm. But I know for me, for the depth of my disease, uh, as a professional who had become arrogant and, and angry and self-centered, I needed 90 days. Uh, I don't think anything less would have worked for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know there's a lot of debate going on in the recovery community out there about uh, should 90-day programs. I'm a huge, unabashed person that says, I think at least for professionals, uh, you know, you need 90 days just to, to even begin to understand recovery. Yeah. To go back to when you were talking about, like, what's that like emotionally when you're seeing yourself on the news? I can't really even imagine um, your home with your family and you're watching the news and you're seeing kind of the worst moment of your life, I'd imagine. Um, how What's going on for you? Well, First and foremost, embarrassment. Yeah, uh, and shame, uh, fear, lonely. Uh, lonely is a feeling word that we use here, and and I felt lonely, isolated. Um, you know, it's really, really hard to look at the image, the mugshot, and go, "That's me." It's really hard to listen to the reporter tell the narrative of what happened and go, "That's me." Um, I felt, um, I felt hopeless when that happened. Um, but, but that was then. And I, I think, I think for me, that was good. It was good. I needed to be broken. Mm-hmm. And so I needed the police to save my life. Uh, the DeKalb County police are my heroes. They saved my life. You know, they could have shown me special treatment that day. They could have said, we're going to cover this up. Right. We're, we're going to let him go home. And, you know, I, I bet I would have been thankful, but looking back on it, that would have been the worst thing. So mm-hmm. shout out and, and thank you to the DeKalb County police and all the officials in DeKalb County who said, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to save this guy's life. Mm. Um, they believed in me as a person. Then the media, I needed the media. I needed the media to hold me accountable and tell tell the first chapter publicly of, of my story, which is the arrest and the addiction. Because without the first chapter, you know, you can't have the, the better chapters. So the third group that saved my life was a combination of my family and friends, pre-Mar and my bro- I call it the brotherhood, the Mar brotherhood. My brothers in recovery that, that, uh, you know, there's like 20-something guys on my cell phone that I text with, call, see in person. Of course, some of them live in other parts of the country. But, you know, the Brotherhood at Mar, I mean, 
with my with my other friends and family, they saved my life. Mm. Uh, because, you know, when you leave Mar on day 91, it's not like it's a magic world out there. That's only really the beginning of recovery. Uh, unfortunately, we were talking today in one of the groups about how important community is and how staying connected is mm-hmm. so important in early recovery. And without the brotherhood, the community that I built at Mar, I don't think I would I would have made it uh, in those early days when I was unemployed and at home alone. Um, just being able to text somebody and make a joke. Yeah, right. Being able to share a, a feeling of, of sadness. Yeah. Being able to go and have a cup of coffee at Starbucks with, with somebody or a Waffle House with somebody. That was all new to me. I have to tell you, for 30 years as a man in the professional world, I didn't have those kind of relationships. Mar gave me the ability to begin to understand how to have those healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. So on that note of the brotherhood, what's that like for you when you get in here at Mar and you can't have your own apartment and you're living with guys that maybe aren't professionals or or maybe some that are, but some aren't, and or, you know, a whole mix of, you know, what's, can you kind of describe the community experience? Are there any particular moments that jump out um, when you remember back in those early days? Well, there's three that jump right out. And one is, is so profound, and it was from a 26-year-old young man. Mm-hmm. Is the think politically correct to say that. Child would be another way to say it. Yeah. But he's 26, and I'm, I'm whining the first several days here because of the phone rule. And for those of you that don't know, well, the first two weeks you're here, you can't call anybody on the phone. And, of course, I feel entitled that the phone is just should be at my complete disposal. And finally, after I just griped a lot about it, mm-hmm. uh, this 26-year-old roommate of mine who's not a professional turned around and said, has it ever occurred to you that the rule isn't for you, it's for your family because maybe they need a break from you? <laughs> wow. That's pretty profound. It is. And it never had. It had never crossed my arrogant mind that maybe my wife and son needed a break from me. And he moved me. Yeah. And he impacted me. And I discussed that and shared that in groups for several days and with counselors. And it was one of the very first times that I had a revelation here that, okay, this isn't all about me. Yeah. That was one. And the other, and and he knows who he is if he's listening. Um, he watched The Big Bang Theory every night. Uh-huh. I did not watch The Big Bang Theory every night. <laughs> well, now it's one of these shows that my wife and son and I watch at home, and uh-huh. it's, it's because you know I was introduced to some stuff here by people that that were new to me, yeah. and I allowed myself to have to have new experiences. And just one of this, just as an example, The yeah. Big Bang Theory has now become a pretty fun part of our life, yeah. and uh, I owe that to one of my roommates. Who before him, I would have never watched that show. Yeah. That's two of them. And the third one's a little more serious. Um, so while I was at Mar, uh, my father died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And um, two things. Uh, one of them is that my, my senior roommate at the time, Dr. Mike, uh, who I know listens to every podcast, uh, is from um, Lexington, Kentucky. And he's a cardiologist of all things. And, of course, Mar let me go to the hospital, not by myself. We still have to follow some rules. But Dr. Mike went with me to the hospital. He's talking to the staff out there. And um, 
in a language that, of course, I couldn't understand. And so I had this gift of having a cardiologist in my community when my dad's having a heart issue. Um, that's one just amazing thing. But I had just told my life story and done was doing my 39s. I don't remember the exact sequence. But but I, that what's important is I had just shared for the first time with a group of men about some of the stuff uh, between my father and I mm-hmm. that impacted me. And, and that's not unique. Fathers and sons, I, I think, throughout the world, you know, you have mm-hmm. things. And, and But I'd never shared my feelings with anybody. Well, the staff was going to work with me on how to talk to my father about that. But literally, the incident occurred shortly after that. So I never had time to talk to my father. So I'm in the hospital, and he's unconscious, and the nurses gave everybody gave me some time alone with him, and I kind of had a, a one-way conversation. Now, Dr. Mike tells me he believes that patients can, can mm-hmm. hear, they just can't respond. So I was able to share some things with my father that I had processed in the life story in 39s and in the community here uh, and in sessions here. I guess that's the way God wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the kind of funny part of that is, um, of course, I'm going to go to the funeral, and my mom wanted me to, to basically give a eulogy. And uh, Marlette, my, you know, you don't take your suit to recovery in case mm-hmm. listeners don't know that. So I didn't have a suit here. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Mar said, well, she can bring you the suit to the funeral home. And so I have the suit here. And my roommates are talking that night in the apartment. Mm-hmm. And I, I know they're talking about me. And I'm like, you know, guys, what? And, and one of them was like, well, you know, we don't have suits. This is funny, but serious. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's my mom, and we're Southern, and this is a funeral, you know. It's my dad. They're like, well, we're going to be in blue jeans and whatever mm-hmm. the best we have is. So I'm weighing this. Mm-hmm. How do I learn to be a brother? It's fear of my mom yeah. going to the funeral in anything less than a suit and tie. Yeah. But here's what occurred to me. And this is, this is the power of recovery. I really do feel strongly about this. My father, in in his in the in the in the viewing, mm-hmm. he was he was buried in a Georgia Tech windbreaker and khakis, not a suit. So I said to my mom, called her up. I had permission at this point to mm-hmm. call about the yeah. funeral, and I uh, I said, Mom, I've, I've been thinking. You know, Dad was in a Georgia Tech thing, and I have a Georgia Tech shirt. I'd like to maybe maybe kind of wear that, mm-hmm. kind of to honor honor that. And she liked that. Mm-hmm. So I was able to work through, process through the first time, caring about these guys, caring about my mom, yeah, and find a solution where before I thought I knew all the answers and was just going to do what I wanted to do. So I go to the funeral itself, and I'm in a, a Georgia Tech shirt and khakis, and I stand up and give the eulogy and I explained to people why I'm dressed the way I am, although I knew most had been to the visitation, but I just, I'm, I'm framing it for everybody. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, it was the number one thing people said to me was how awesome it was that, that you did that wow. for your dad. <laughs> That's recovery. Yeah. That's recovery. Yeah. Wow. And talk about your relationship with the counselors here too. What was that like? What did they provide in terms of... so? That's a great. That's a great thing. It's a great story. I, I know we're all we all have our our special perspectives. So for me, um, what I'll never forget, and I'm so 
he, I love this man now. But Matt Irwin was on my case in phase one, and he would, he would yell at me and tell me to shut up, and I'm not, he'd ask, anybody want to say anything? And I'd, not you, not you, breed love. And I would go down to talk to Doug or Paul Thune or somebody about mm-hmm. how mean Matt Irwin, they would laugh, you just process that somewhere else. You know? Yeah. And um, I'd talk to Will about it in, in our community meetings, and they mm-hmm. just laugh. And so, you know, for those of you that don't know, when you go from phase one to phase two, they give you a sheet of paper and they ask you, well, who would you like to be your phase two counselor? I wrote down a list of names and nowhere on that list was Matt Irwin. Because, you know, yeah, I hate him. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so one day, and, and I should say, you know, they never pull you out of a meeting here unless it's like really bad. And I knew something was up. And... um but I could tell it wasn't like like a family thing. And he said, hey, we have a question for you. Would you be willing to con- – the infamous words at Mar, would you be willing to consider yeah. having Matt as your phase two uh, primary counselor? Now, my reaction was to say not just no, but hell no. Yeah, right. Um, but I knew. I knew that Mar was telling me something. I'd, I had learned enough in phase one that, that – that this was not really a request, but they were letting me decide. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in all seriousness, uh, before Paul and I adjourned that little conversation, I said, absolutely, let's let's go for it. Now, I wasn't happy about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking we're going to go down here and have these big fights. And we did. The very first meeting, Matt threw me out of his office. He said, get the hell out of my office. And oh, I, 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 I was on his case with all my peers for a week. Yeah, but the second week, uh huh, it's a totally different meeting. Do you remember what he threw you out for? Oh, whatever was in Matt's mind that he just—it was just to throw me out. Yeah, it was just to throw me out. It was. It was. I know it was to humble me, to break me down. Yeah, and and that's why I love Matt Irwin today. Yeah, Matt took me through a series. Of, of tough love meetings. Mm-hmm. And I needed that. That's that's real recovery. Mm-hmm. I didn't need to be told, oh, Jeff, you're a special guy and you're a nice guy. I needed somebody to make me accountable, to make me look at myself, to look at life, to look at issues in a way that nobody else had ever been able to connect with me. Will and, and Matt come to mind. Of course, I I, I see Rick yeah. twice a week in the professionals group, and it's almost. And I went through uh, building better relations BBR with Rick. Mm-hmm. It's just almost impossible to 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 put into words how much Rick means to me. Yeah, and how much that group. I think coming to Mar three days a week, like I do, and still having, do, still yeah. do, still do. No longer a patient, but still coming. Uh, well. <laughs> right. I tell Doug that I feel like I'm in phase three of yeah. volunteers because I still need it. See, my yeah. I just I think everybody's recovery's specialized. That's one thing I like about Doug is that yeah. he will sit down with you individually and he will find uh as the ultimate uh head of the man's program, he'll find something that he feels is healthy for you and he'll listen to you. Yeah. But he makes the decisions ultimately. And we found a thing that works for me. And Mar giving me the grace of being a part of Rick's group and, and then the ARP that Doug leads on Saturday mornings right now. Those are the, the things I do right now. Um, 
It saved my life. I, I cannot explain how I went from wanting my own apartment and, and being isolated to how the highlight of my week, and I say this with no sarcasm at all, I'm drop dead serious, the highlight of my week is Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I just, I need to be here. Uh, there's peers of mine that are here. See, I can count to six and seven and nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I go, you know, if these guys can come six years, nine years. I can do that too. Mm-hmm. They inspire. I see you get inspiration by being around others in a community. Yeah. Um, if there's a tragedy, you can, you can get comfort and love from others. So there's positivity in community. There's, there's comfort in community. Um, and Mar is the foundation for me that provides the stability and recovery. And what I love too about that, the the way you describe the counseling staff's interaction with you is that they're it's very personalized. You know, it's like, and I've been, I've sat in a lot of those staffing meetings too, where it's like they talk very detailed about what's going on with each of the clients and carefully weigh, go back and forth. Of, Should we let this person do this? I don't know. This is going on. So anyways, just, it really struck me how, um, carefully considered all that guidance was. It's not like a cookie cutter approach where it's like, this is what we do for all of our, we, we, you know, there are some standards and rules for ever that apply to everybody, but, but in terms of particularly as you get further on in your treatment and looking at you going back to work and all that stuff, it's very carefully considered. And, and, and something else I was thinking about with Matt, that's made me, I mean, I, I feel all the, you know, I, I respect Matt so much and I just, I could go on about him forever, but he, um, I was, I really grew, even grew more in my respect for him when I realized when he, when I found out that that's actually pretty hard for him to, that doesn't come natural for him to be like that really tough love kind of, uh, you know, approach. Like I thought like, oh, well that's just his personality. That's easy. But it's like, he does it because he cares about the. No, that's, that's true about Matt. And you know, Matt, uh, you're right. We could do a whole show just on that. <laughs> right. And, and maybe someday we should. Yeah. Maybe someday there should be a group of guys who's life talking about Matt's Matt impacted, Irwin. But, yeah. And the others. But, you know, the personalization is is key. And listen, I, I think, you know, Doug would be the first to say this, you know, however you get help, get help. But if, if Mar might be the place for you, you know, as someone who's who considers himself now, a person whose life has been saved by Mar, I can I I don't mind saying at all. They they that is part of the secret. Is I believe not only do they care, a lot of people care. They know how to professionally get to know you and personally get to know you, and they blend that together. They have discernment to know how to individualize treatment within the concepts of of rules, like you said. And I think that's part of the secret of the success at Mar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that Mar is – I tell people, Atlanta, Georgia, Doraville, Georgia, where we are technically in metro Atlanta, you know, one of the best treatment centers in the United States of America is right here at, at Mar. And, uh, you know, it, it takes a back seat to nobody. And if you can, if you can be at Mar, you need to be at Mar. If, if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering about recovery and you're scared and – you think, well, 90 days, and that's 90 days that will save your life. And these are, this is the best team uh, to do it. 
And they will do it if you let them do it. What's one thing you would pass on to people that are listening, if you could? To believe in yourself. To The stigma that, 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 that you are feeling about addiction, it's as deadly as any chemical you're going to put in your body. And believe that there's over 800,000 people in Georgia in recovery, 23 million in this country. You're not alone by any stretch of the imagination. And you got a whole community of people. And let yourself get the help that you know you want. And one day you'll get to feel the joy and the happiness that I feel. Thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate you coming by and, and doing this and for staying involved in Mar and helping keep it going with with everybody. <laughs> well, I love Mar. I love my brothers at Mar. I love that Mar has this podcast yeah. and is using social media to reach out to, to people that might need help. And uh, I'm just so proud to say, you know what I'm proud to do? I'm proud to wear my Mar shirt out in public and I'm proud to explain what Mar means and I'm proud to be a Mar alumni. That's awesome. Quite a, quite a journey from, from hiding, you know, keeping everything secret and getting exposed on the news to, to that. So well, recovery changes you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that's perfect. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Shedd. Our show is co-produced by Angela Edmonds, and our executive producer is David Tate. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>